Welcome to Listener's Advisory, the San Diego Public Library podcast. Banned Books Week is upon us. Today, we'll be exploring intellectual freedom and how SDPL fights censorship. Also, Scott and I hang with our favorite executive producer to discuss our favorite banned books. So stick around. This should be fun. The American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom reports that in 2020, 273 book titles were challenged or banned. Between school and public library closures and the rest of the world essentially shutting down, censorship still managed to run rampant. However, librarians and library workers have a long tradition of fighting censorship within our institutions. One expression of that fight is Banned Books Week. Well, Banned Books Week is our annual celebration of our freedom to read. It's really remarkable that over 200 years, the United States has had a provision in place, the First Amendment, that grants everyone an absolute right to read, speak, uh, associate with who they want to associate with. An important part of that is the freedom to read. I'm Deborah Caldwell Stone. I'm director of ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom. What that means is that on a daily basis, I work with libraries, library workers, and trustees on defending the freedom to read in libraries. Deborah Caldwell Stone has long fought on behalf of our intellectual freedoms. At ALA, she served in leadership and advisory roles, dealing with everything from internet filtering to the USA Patriot Act. As a professional intellectual freedom advocate, she makes the case for its place in libraries. Well, in library land, intellectual freedom is the freedom to read and inquire without the government looking over your shoulder and really anyone looking over your shoulder. The ability to explore ideas without being disturbed. And it's really a larger concept as well. Uh, Intellectual freedom really goes to the inherent dignity of every person to make up their own minds, to form their own identity, and reading and accessing information is an important part of that. What you believe, um, your politics, your religion, all that's formed by reading. And so defending intellectual freedom is really uh, an important thing about defending individual human rights and the ability of everyone to reach their full potential. Unfortunately, libraries have not always been bastions of intellectual freedom. It's true that libraries haven't always defended the freedom to read in libraries. In fact, they were rather insistent for many years on using library collections to enforce conventional morality. But that changed over a period of time, primarily in the 1930s, as librarians across the country started to observe what was happening in Nazi Germany and the suppression uh, of thought there, the burning of books. Former SDPL librarian and local historian Rick Crawford notes that San Diego is no stranger to censorship efforts. In his article, The Last Temptation of the Book Censors, he recounts the 1963 effort to remove the book The Last Temptation of Christ by Greek author Nikos Kazantzakis from the San Diego Public Library. Despite the title receiving critical praise, it was claimed that the book was, quote, part of a communist conspiracy to destroy the morals of our youth and undermine Christianity. Clara Breed, the city librarian at the time, understood the stakes and refused to remove the book. As a librarian, she likely saw it as her duty to defend the public's right to read. First and foremost um, is understanding the obligation of 
public libraries and public school libraries in particular to defend First Amendment right to access information. And that leads to strong policies that uh, address collection development, that address the right of the user to access information. But probably what's most important is the professional ethical commitment of library workers uh, across the country to set aside personal belief and ensure that there is a broad diversity of thought in the library for everyone to access and and to vow to fight censorship, whatever and whatever form it takes, whether it's a request to remove a book or demand to stop offering a program. It's become part of the professional ethical obligation of librarians across the country to prevent that from happening. Many library systems throughout the United States and beyond point to three specific documents that detail these ethical obligations. The Freedom to Read and Freedom to View statements, as well as the Library Bill of Rights. They're statements of professional values that outline a path for libraries, library workers, library trustees, to bring intellectual freedom to life. Intellectual freedom can be a very stale philosophical concept, or it can be lived. It can be applied in daily practice. And those documents not only outline what intellectual freedom means and the commitment of librarianship to defend intellectual freedom, but they also provide a path to making that real for library users, library workers across the country. And in You know, really, it's up to the individual library worker, the library trustee to read those documents and to figure out how to apply them to their daily practice in order to assure the library users intellectual freedom. The San Diego Public Library's collection development policy also points to these documents not only for guidance, but as statements of organizational values. Well, as a public library, we want to make sure that people are fully aware that the public library exists for everyone. Um, Everyone has a right to access to information, no matter how controversial. Um, The freedom to read, um, freedom to view, and the Bill of Rights is an extension of the First Amendment. Um, So we want to put it out there that we are fully in support of the First Amendment in those particular statements, um, which come from the American Library Association. That's Robin Gage Norquist. She's the supervising librarian of technical services and oversees collection development for all of SDPL. Well, we occasionally have patrons um, that come to staff complaining about a content of a book. Typically, they're pointing out harsh language or violence, and it really doesn't go beyond them just giving their opinion about the content of a book. Um, But if someone wants to actually challenge a book being in the collection, um, they just need to let us know and then a form is given to them uh, to fill out. It's, um, It's called the Request for Reconsideration. What it does is it forces the patron to really let us know, one, that they've actually read the book. Um, completely, and then to also point out what what are the issues with the book and also what they would recommend um, in its place. Should a patron choose to pursue a challenge, there is a process. I have to uh, convene a committee of staff and we look at the content of the book, what the challenge is, Um, We also look at the era in which the book was published because that could be a factor in why the content is the way it is. Um, So I had to do research. 
Um, if the members of the committee are not familiar with the book, they will tend to do research before we have our meeting. And then we kind of uh, talk it out. We come to consensus as to whether that book should be kept in the collection or not. And then we make a recommendation to the library director. And then once the library director gets our recommendation, then it's uh, up to the director to get back to the patron and let them know what our decision is. And then the way that I understand it is once that decision is given by the director, they can still appeal it to the board of commissioners. Correct. They can still appeal the decision um, and, and go from there. I have never had anyone appeal um, our, our decision. What challengers should understand is that getting a book pulled from the collection is generally an uphill battle. Um, well, if you look at the Library Bill of Rights, um, it includes a statement that we use a lot of times when we get a challenge. And that statement is, libraries should challenge censorship in the fulfillment of their responsibility to provide information and enlightenment. So in general, we're always going to support keeping a book in the collection. All that being said, there are instances when it's practical to remove books or other material from the collection. Um, but there have been times when there's been justification for removal. I think one of the, the big issues is if a book contains incorrect information that could be harmful to patrons. We've had DIY electrical books where the publisher has found a, a mistake later on and the publishers reach out to us and let us know, hey, you need to remove this book from the shelves. So those kinds of issues, um, we always try to be careful about weeding out medical books that are older, um, legal books that are older because it's giving incorrect information to our patrons. Of course, there will always be shifting cultural values, difficult and challenging material, and certainly exceptional instances. And while SDPL has no hard and fast rule on removing material from the collection, our guiding principles are clear. Well, if you look at the freedom to read and the freedom to view um, and the Library Bill of Rights, that is our stance on censorship. Obviously, we, we don't want to censor information unless there is a really big reason for us to do so. And that's where we have the reconsideration um, process. Banned Books Week runs September 26th through October 2nd this year. Visit us at www.sandiego.gov forward slash Banned Books Week for links to materials, videos, and other system-wide Banned Books Week programming efforts. One must-see video is a reading of Rick Crawford's The Last Temptation of the Book Censors, as well as Banned Books Live with partners right out loud happening at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, September 28th at the Central Library. Also, be sure to visit BannedBooksWeek.org for American Library Association-sponsored programming, including a Facebook Live event with author Jason Reynolds. Before we go further, I want to give listeners a heads up. During the discussion of Raina Telgemeier's book, Drama, there's a spoiler mentioned. If you haven't yet read the book and are hoping to maintain some mystery, please skip ahead. Hey folks, Bob here. Today I'm with Listener's Advisory co-host Scott Eric Burgess and the podcast's executive producer, Jennifer Jenkins, to talk about our favorite banned books. Scott, Jennifer, how are you? Bob, we're doing great. Jennifer, congratulations on your uh, title change. Thank you. I got a promotion. I'm really happy to be here um, as the executive producer. I heard I was asked to be back. That was like the most requested appearance on the podcast so far in the first season. Indeed, indeed. 
Did you um, make that up, Scott, when you told me that? No, no, uh, no. I, I can tell you a fact. No one has requested my appearance on the podcast. So, <laughs> so you're at least second. I'm going to go ahead and set things off. I brought two books with me to discuss for this segment. The first one is Of Mice and Men um, by John Steinbeck. It was published in 1937, and it is from ALA's top 10 most challenged book list. It was banned and challenged for racial slurs and racist stereotypes and their negative effects on students. I'm a longtime John Steinbeck fan and his themes of struggle and stories of working class, salt of the earth type folks really resonate with me. The first story that I read by Steinbeck was Cannery Row. I found the characters and the pace of life from that story really, really enjoyable. It was happy and dark and silly and serious. And Lenny, who is one of the main characters from Of Mice and Men, kind of really struck me as one of those types of characters that are both good and bad, innocent and guilty, good and evil. And so while I haven't read all of Steinbeck's stuff, I haven't yet read anything that I didn't care for. The next book that I brought was The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. It was published in 1990. Uh, this was from 2019's banned book list, and it was banned for vulgar language, sexual content, and violence that was considered unacceptable for an educational setting. This was a book that I had laying around my house for a few years. I picked it up once upon a time when I thought that I had more time for it, but last year during quarantine, I did finally get through it. It really struck with me by the characterizations of boys at war. I understand that they're technically men, but 18, 19, 20, you're, you're still kind of a child. And so while I did find these to be very real depictions of war, as far as I could tell, um, this really struck me because it seemed to be a story about what happens to kids who are forced to be warriors. But that book, uh, Things They Carried, Bob, is an amazing book. It was on every reading list in every <laughs> English class in college in the 90s and really was an important book for me too to pick up on reading so good pick thank you uh yeah it was it was dope it really you know it was one of those ones that i had heard about for so many years and then when i did finally pick it up it's like oh wow this is why everybody likes this so much jennifer what you got for us Okay, I have two books uh, for you today. I am a former youth services librarian, so I love uh, literature for youth, and I love a good Bildungsroman. Do you know what a Bildungsroman is? No. That is a coming-of-age story, a story about a person's formative years or a spiritual growth. My first book is Bridge to Terabithia by Katherine Patterson. It was published in October 21st, 1977. It gutted me in elementary school. Like it's probably the first time that I really engaged with realistic fiction and felt like the characters could be someone that I knew or someone that I went to school with. It deals with real life topics like loss and death. And it shows a realistic friendship between a boy and a girl, which is another thing that I don't think was very common at the time that it was published. It's geared toward kids ages 9 to 12, the tween years. It's still relevant 40 years later, which is something that kind of blows my mind, but it's not surprising because of the themes that are present and because of how well the story is written and how well the characters are developed. Um, another thing that I think is interesting to note about this title and when it was published is that it came out during a period of 
great unrest in the U.S. It was the ending of the Vietnam War. The nation was divided by war protests, the civil rights movement, and it was uncertain economic times, which doesn't sound familiar at all right now. (laughs) The reasons cited for it being challenged or being banned are that it displays the occult, Satanism, offensive language. Um, It depicts the parents of one of the characters as atheists. The kids in the story have really serious conversations about religion and their questioning uh, religion because they come from different backgrounds. Um, one, One of the children has like a religious family and the other her parents are more educated. She moves to this rural area. They're atheist or non-religious. And so this is also really important to the story because ultimately the story is about death and loss. And honestly, I've read some critiques that say that one of the reasons that even though the reasons stated um, are kind of flimsy, in my opinion, um, that the real reason that people challenge this book so often is because it confronts death and childhood death and the loss of a child realistically and uh doesn't you know doesn't sugarcoat the story or the impact of the story it's super tragic it's super emotional and some folks i don't think really want to deal with that or don't want to have to deal with that with their children um so the reason i like this book again is because it speaks to my heart it was one of my favorites as a kid Um, But I also can see how it relates to, you know, experiences today that kids are going through. So the other book that I chose is Drama by Raina Telgemeier. It was published in 2012. And the reason I picked this book is for a couple of reasons. One, Raina Telgemeier is a friend of San Diego Public Library. We have met her several times. She's been here for events. She is an amazing artist. She is also a delightful person and very giving as an author. She really makes a point to relate to kids when she's doing book signings and when she's talking to them. All the kids love these books. They're graphic novels. They're very relatable topics. The um, cartoon style of the illustrations I, gives people the impression that it's comic booky or cartoony. It's definitely for kids. You can tell from the cartoon-like illustrations. So the reason that it was challenged is because, here's the reason stated by ALA, it had depicted LGBTQIA plus characters and goes against family values and morals. And that challenge was as was recent as 2019. There's no profanity in the book. There's no drugs or alcohol in the book. There's no sexual content in the book. The, the LGBTQ plus characters just exist. And that's the challenge. There's one out gay character in the story. And then there is one that's questioning his sexuality. The whole story is about a middle school play. You wouldn't think that would be super controversial. But the character who is questioning his sexuality becomes the understudy to a female character. And when the female lead can't be in the play, the big culmination of the story, he steps in and he shares a chaste kiss with his actor on stage. And so that's what gets people really fired up about this book. Um, It's actually very wholesome and sweet and really uh, middle school kids relate to this story. And I I think that it's important that kids with different types of identity are able to identify themselves in literature. The comic book Legal Defense Fund has an entire case study on um, the challenge to this book and a lot of other graphic novels, because graphic novels are particularly vulnerable to challenges. 
um, for two reasons. There's lingering stigma that the value of the speech in graphic novels is very low. And then it's very easy to cherry pick singular images out of context and challenge them. So the comic book Legal Defense Fund uh, actively works to fight against censorship specifically of comics and graphic novels, which I think is really important because graphic novels, as librarians know for sure, are definitely a way to engage kids with reading that aren't highly motivated to read. Scott, what you got? Bob, uh, let me preface by saying as a cynical person who lives in an era of short attention spans, fractured media, infinite content, it actually gives me hope that books are still being challenged and banned because it means that literature still matters, that books can still be dangerous, even in this world where we have all these other choices to not read, it still has a power. So the book I picked is actually Black Beauty by Anna Sewell. Uh, as a bookseller, I just should admit that I haven't read the book. Booksellers, we don't actually read the books, we sell the books. But this has an interesting background of why it was banned. It was published in 1877, but it was banned uh, in the 60s briefly by censors in apartheid area South Africa because they felt the idea of something being black and beautiful was too dangerous. So the censors didn't even take the time to open the book and try to see what it's about. They just saw the title. It was politically dangerous. They said, nope. So once they realized it was about a horse, they took it off the banned list. But I think of Black Beauty as the poster child for the stupidity of banning books because its narrator is a horse and its purpose was to bring awareness about animal cruelty in the 1870s to readers. It sold over 50 million copies, but obviously apartheid was abhorrent. Banning books on racial grounds is unacceptable, but the example of Black Beauty also illustrates for me the intellectual laziness of the folks who ban books in general. They don't even have like the decency to read what they're challenging and banning. Uh, the other book is not a book, so I'm going to pivot to the retail side of banning books. So an interesting phenomenon that's come out in the last 10, 15 years is the counterculture fighting banned books is actually much more interesting now than the banned book culture. And what's happened is an entire genre of retail items has come out of trolling people who ban books. So just at the <laughs> library shop, if you go to libraryshopsd.org, you can see some of our banned books products. They include a banned books heat reactive mug that has a list of banned books censored out. And when you fill it with hot liquid, it reveals the titles so that you can read the verboten titles. Just take uh, all my money, Scott. Take it right I, now. I think you've already bought that one, Jennifer. I'm pretty <laughs> sure. Uh, there's banned book socks where one sock has a list of banned books. The other sock has the same list with the titles crossed out. It goes on and on. Books, uh, masks, totes, pouches, notebooks, enamel pins, stickers, uh, we have a tote that says ban bombs, not books, all sorts of different merchandise, imploring people to read banned books and to fight censorship. And my favorite banned books product is a set of banned book matches. So that's actually how I learned that Black Beauty was a banned book because it comes in a set of matchbooks that have the covers of the banned books on them. So uh, it's convenient so that if you do conduct a book burning, you can use the corresponding set of matches for the books you're trying to burn. So there's a whole the whole culture of poking fun at banning books, and it's a vibrant retail segment. Indeed, indeed. On that note, I'm going to say... 
thank you to both of you. I uh, appreciate you guys coming through. Thanks, Thanks Bob. Bob. Hey, guys. That's going to do it for today's episode. I'd like to thank our guests, Deborah Caldwell-Stone, Robin Gage Norquist, and Jennifer Jenkins. As always, thanks to Pete Meisner and Luke Henshaw for contributing original music, and a megaphone loud shout out to Mission Valley Branch Youth Services Librarian Marika Jeffrey. After last year's closures, Marika was one of the folks setting the bar for other librarians making the transition from live, in-person programming to the virtual realm. Not only are her digital programs innovative, they're immensely popular. For information on any of the policies, programs, or titles mentioned in this episode, please see our show notes or visit us at www.sandiego.gov forward slash SDPL podcast. If you like what we're doing here at Listener's Advisory, please consider sharing our podcast on your social media, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast directory, or tell someone you know about us. Thanks in advance.